Hello and welcome everyone to The New Romantics, our monthly or almost monthly uh, survey of science and literature with an attempt to find some kind of terra cognita between the two. I'm Will Eves, I'm a novelist and poet and my trusty companion is... I'm Sophie Scott and I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London and I'm particularly interested in brains and communication. Which is why she's talking to someone without one who can't communicate at the moment (laughs) because I've had a migraine for five days. But less of that and more of the texts and things we're going to discuss. So we're going to look at a paper on cultural engagement and mental health and their relationship to socioeconomic indicators. And Sophie's going to say a little bit about that in just a moment. And alongside that, we will be looking at, and I will read a couple of them, some poems by Adam uh, Zagajewski, a great uh, Polish poet uh, who died very recently, immensely important as one of the kind of Eastern European respondents to communism and the European state of affairs in the post-war era. Very interesting life and um, some very, very beautiful, intelligible poems. But we'll start off with the paper from Social Science and Medicine and Sophie's going to say a little bit about it now. This is uh, research that's done by my UCL colleague Daisy Fancourt and she's been very interested in... She's an epidemiologist but she asks questions that have very interesting implications, I think, for psychology and neuroscience. So epidemiology means, you know, kind of the study of vast uh, numbers of people and effects on their lives. Effectively, I'm, I'm allowed, all epidemiologists are allowed to burst into tears at this point. But they're not interested particularly in the granularity of any one person. The, 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 the questions being asked at a larger scale. And what she consistently finds is that there is a, a positive effect on people's mental health of being engaged in, for want of a better phrase, kind of like cultural matters. So doing things like going to an art gallery or joining a choir or learning to play an instrument and playing in a band or things that would kind of take you not just into creative things like making your own art but also engaging with art on some other scale, so regularly going to the theatre. And... I think there are very interesting questions to ask about that and what that means and why that might be good. And in this particular paper, what they're trying to get at is the obvious criticism that, well, not everybody gets to do these things. So are you just basically saying being middle class is good for your mental health? Mm. And what they argue is actually there is an effect of that, but even when you control for that, it is still good for people to engage with cultural artistic endeavours. Do you think this? I mean, it's on on the face of it. This is an uns, unsurprising uh, finding, because for millennia, the essence of artistic activity was social ritual, and everyone was involved in it. Mm. Uh, so to discover that people gain some um, personal social benefit from cultural engagement is as much as to say, we come from. Uh, you know, the rootstock of communities that did things together. Mm. And yes, it's true that humans have, you know, are very adaptable and specialise in different ways. But a lot of the kind of basis of the community, the way it protected itself, it learnt things, the way you handed on law, the way you handed on culture, the way you handed on religious practice 
was by communal repetition. Mm. So perhaps this is accessing something quite fundamental about our our, our, our psychic and our, our cultural makeup. I think there is, and I think I'm very aware of the argument that says you don't need to show that art has a meaningful effect on the world to mean that there's any value in it. So I'm not trying to say that you... If this wasn't the case, then there's no point doing art at all. If you can't improve people's mental well-being, then we're done and dusted, don't need art anymore. But I think there is something about the the meaning of being engaged and something to do with um, another another thing that keeps coming out in in sort of studies of well-being. And this is, again, it's across the world. It's something you find in every human culture, is that being engaged in something that has a sense of purpose or feeling like your life has a sense of purpose really matters and I wonder if the two kind of come together so it's like it's there seems to be even an importance in the like for example you could sit down and look at the photographs in an art gallery on the internet and that doesn't seem to give you the same effect as going to a gallery going to a place that has this marked status that does a different thing and you enter into it and there is it kind of starts to sound like a ritual well, I think what you're what what you're raising there is that is you know the difference that actually the tension that exists in uh, society now and has existed in various ways I think since the early modern period since the 16th century it first arises really in in the 16th century between art that is social that is commonly understood uh, where you can speak in the common language and do things and produce images that are commonly and instantly recognised and art that is individual, art that speaks to personal experience, which by definition sort of gets at something truer about the individual perception, but which is less easily transmitted to a group. Mm. So it all, it all depends. What I'm saying is it depends what you really mean by culture and art. Yeah. Are you talking about the, the social ritual or the, or the sort of grandsire of that? Or are you talking about the personal expression, which is the, the romantic revival moment, you know, of, of, um, of, of, of the person retreating from society and producing uh, their own work because in order to be true, they don't want to speak in the common tongue. It's an interesting thing there, actually, just saying that about someone like Wordsworth who claimed to be writing in the language of, you know... Um, farmers in the in the lake district but in actual fact he he wrote mostly in 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 quite a high level um poetic idiom mm. that certainly wasn't common regardless of his protestations to the contrary and that happens at that moment and it also happens as i said earlier on the 16th century when people begin to retreat from social ritual in order to get at something truer that can't be said in the common tongue often for reasons of social pressure, political pressure, censorship. You know, um, mm. on, you could only say certain things on the stage in Elizabethan England. If you went too far, you know, in an absolutist society, you were running the risk of, of you know, being sort of hounded off or thrown into the, you know, the tower. <laughs> uh, so that, that tension, I think, is is really, really important when we talk about cultural engagement. Are we talking about something personal, something social? I mean, I sometimes wonder if it couldn't be both, because one of the arguments people make is that the effects on mental health aren't uniform. It's not like you've had your squirt of culture and now you feel better. So I think you could imagine there could be separable 
effects of being engaged in a common activity where we go to this place and we look at this thing or we listen to this thing and there is a special place where it happens or a place is made special by it happening there but you go to it and you have a shared experience you're not the only person there and that that's a sort of you know that's a strong social engagement element but there's also an argument that says it helps you personally deal with your own emotions you get uh either there's your somewhat better at coping with emotional regulation if you've had these opportunities perhaps to try out different kinds of emotional experience in the way that art can let you the the greek word for that is catharsis although by catharsis you know the greeks meant that actually you were when you went to see a tragedy you you were sort of you were you were raising us the the spectre of something generally feared in the populace and sort of mm. expunging it exorcising it by watching this play and performing it but i think it's also it's also possible to say that that the the modern day equivalent of that is that you go to see something and exactly as you say not only is the general awareness of the problem raised the issue spoken about you know whatever it might be a political problem or a great fear of automation or a fear of disease very much in the air at the moment but also you bring your personal anxieties and mm. they are somehow alleviated i suppose it it what it comes down to is you know what, if you're doing both at the same time as you as you suggest what is the what's the point of intersection mm. you know how how can you write something or perform something that speaks both to the group and to the person and in a way that is that is classically the problem in you know good writing and good performance yeah. how do you do something that's sufficiently distinct so that you think ah oh, i've not seen that before mm. but which also is recognizable you're you're seeing something that is in a way already known yeah yeah you, yes you feel like you're not being surprised you're you're recognizing something and, so i'm just rephrasing you but yeah and uh, that's where the, the business of depression is, is and mental health is, is so interesting in art because although this paper uh, is looking mostly at uh, people, uh, it's looking at people over 50, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's right. And it's wondering about the, the correlations between um, cultural engagement and probability of developing depression and vis-a-vis socioeconomic indicators. But... Actually, as a teacher of creative writing, what I generally find, and I think this will strike a chord with a lot of people out there who are also involved in that field, is that it's young people who talk about and write about uh, mental health issues uh, very often, very prevalently, and older people who don't. Now, that may be because... Uh, to do with the acculturation, you know, of, mm. of mental health, that, that generation, our generation above, it, it's not so obvious to us that we would air these things. And it is a little more obvious or mm. um, necessary to to the younger generation. I think also, I'm not certain there's any suggestion that this wouldn't also be true for younger people. It's just they happen to be studying older people, partly because when you're working with an older population, you've got other questions like, you know, if I can if I can find something that could um, reduce the risk of dementia yeah. for someone, for a population, then that's, that. you know, even if you just delay things for a couple of years, that would have an enormous impact on someone's life and have financial implications. So I think that's often why you're seeing this emphasis for some of these kind of well-being things addressing a, an ageing population. But it's, 
it's certainly I've seen nothing to suggest this wouldn't reflect backwards as well that it's uh, something that you you would be expecting to have a similar mechanism across any adult effectively it would have it could it could have the potential for that role my worry when i when i talk to uh, students as, as I have done quite a lot and in fact I'm, I'm judging a prize at the moment where I'm, I'm looking at a lot of very interesting postgraduate work um, I would say fully 70-75% of the portfolios articulate an experience of you know, mental distress or an interest in it that comes from personal experience. The thing that I want to say but one has to be very careful to say this is that in some ways the um, the retreat from society into um, a very solitary space in which poetry or essay writing or something is pursued to the exclusion of contact with other people is actually part of the problem. Mm. I, I don't know that it's very obvious to me that it's a salve for anything. I mm. think in some cases, uh, and I'm absolutely not saying it shouldn't be done, but in some cases it's a stimulant. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's quite hard to have that conversation without it looking as if you're saying, um, you know, you're depressed, you shouldn't be writing, it'll make you worse, which, mm. I, which I'm not saying at all. But I am saying that actually um, there are two things going on here, coming back to the social and the personal, that, that you know, really part of the cure or the ongoing accommodation with the self that this person in distress needs is they need to return to a sense of what it is to be um, a human being mm. uh, functioning at large with contact, with company. Yeah. Let's just call it company. Yeah. Uh, and part of what they're not getting is that because they are either through lo lockdown or through choice. Yeah stuck in their rooms, you know, writing postmodern poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do feel like uh, we've been in this vast experiment for, um, for psych you know, for sort of cognitive neuroscience on the impact of, you know, like severely limiting people's, well, everything, your, your engagement in the social world, your engagement in the cultural world, everything's got very small. And we do know that this is, this is, people, people adapt, so this is a changeable feast, but you can adapt in both directions and want it's almost like the kind of the direction of entropy is the easier one to fall into it's hard to push yourself back out of that but you will always feel better if you do yeah and this we know even like the tiniest bit of exercise even just stepping outside and getting a breath of fresh air and walking once around up and down the street and then back home will be better you will feel better than if you stay in but it's very hard to to sort of make yourself do that when you are caught in this kind of local minima of activity. Yeah. And I think we have a whole nation, a whole world of people who've been placed in that situation. Yeah. It is a fascinating sort of and very unfortunate experiment, as you say, that's going on. But it has it has connections also to, to questions of identity, which mm. are very much in the air at the moment. And one of the questions that comes out of that is, how big does your group with which you wish to identify have to be in order for you to have social presence? Mm. And if you only, and if you're very, very keen to conserve your um, individualism, how much of a social identity will that give you? Yeah. You know, and that is something that I think 
if we if we if the question of identity degenerates so that groups become more and more atomized and we see this on a kind of national and a geopolitical scale as well as at the sort of you know smaller level of of communities and universities and just generally then what our connect what is what is our connectivity going to be like what mm. what how are we going to maintain what will our social links be and i think that is really a question for our times i yeah. think it's a really really interesting one about this before do you remember when i'm sure everybody listening remembers when we were talking about the, galar- <laughs> the social lives of galada baboons and how if you were uh, if you were a, an adult male galada baboon who wasn't embedded in a troop of baboons as a sort of the alpha male that you would live longer if you had social contacts which will be with a female baboon male baboons don't groom each other who would groom you I and mean, who you would groom and that they added two years to their lives. It was a huge effect. And, interesting. And we find the same thing with humans. The bigger your social network and the stronger your connections, those nodes in those social networks, the longer you live. Mm-hmm. It's really. But the thing is, we don't know what happens. You know, it's, you can describe that, and we know it's grooming for the Galada baboons. That, that helps both. It's, it's nice, and also it gets rid of parasites. So, what's the grooming for humans? And of course. It's probably talking to each other yeah. because that's not just where you transmit information, but you share gossip. You 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 feel more intimate together. You do things like laugh together. So you you know, a bit much like in the grooming example, you feel better in the moment. And that's where presence is so important because you're responding not just to kind of verbal cues, but to gestural yes. ones. Yes, everything, yeah. even down to where you sit next to each other. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. So if I had my my druthers. But, I mean, I've studied speech and communication all my life, and I've pretty much always studied the level of here is someone talking, here is someone listening. And we have started looking at here are people doing something together, but we're still on the foothills of actually understanding it's never just words. There's always a voice, there's a mm. social meaning, and it's being used in in this context. So I think actually understanding why, you know, that dreadful old BT advert, it's good to talk, but why? Why is it good to yeah. talk? Why is that the thing, the special source? Yeah. When people write about very intimate stuff in a kind of therapeutic way, not necessarily an artistic way, that's an interesting question. How does is therapeutic writing, art, art writing, yeah. often not because it's so introspective? It's not actually you're not talking to someone; yeah. you're really talking to yourself. Yeah, and that is the point at which you know the, the language stops being personal and intimate, which can involve someone else, and just becomes private. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really—it's a very hard but necessary negotiation that you that you have to have as a young writer or a writer of any age to try and work out how you make these difficult internal wranglings Mm. public Mm. so that they are intelligible to other people fine if you don't particularly want them to be intelligible but then you can't complain if people don't read them yeah and what i find with a lot of uh, students of creative writing this again this is not a kind of criticism but it is just an observation is that they write much more than they read yeah so you're i think you know it is good to talk and somehow certainly in 
that area of artistic production, we've got to get it back to being more of a two-way thing where people read as well as write. And that means taking all the kind of cultural paraphernalia of reading seriously, libraries, books, you know, uh, not dumbing down, paying people the compliment of talking about things intelligently and seriously Mm. on the public broadcaster. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I know that makes me sound like a terrible conservative, but I'm not. I'm actually saying something, I hope, quite radical. Yeah. That, that, you know, it should be for everyone. If we take it seriously, that means cultural engagement is is at some level good for our well-being. People aren't getting involved in culture because they think they're going to see something they already know or they're going to not be surprised by something or made to think twice about something. And actually, it's an enjoyable process. People like to engage with ideas and it is flattering to be taken seriously as a consumer of those ideas i think that's totally right but but actually what is being projected and sold out there is that it's it's not good if you're challenged and that if you're challenged somehow it's difficult and not enjoyable uh or or something that's, this is where it's not so much exactly socioeconomic indicators that come into the picture, but but that business of class, mm. that, you know, if you get a kick out of something which not everyone else is doing, who do you think you are? Yes. You know, and yeah. it's, you know, have you got above yourself in some way? It's still a key, key thing in, in British culture. very struck um kind of going back to my endless obsession with old tony hancock recordings but particularly in the television series of that there was this great you know it was funny that he had these aspirations to be reading philosophy and to be trying to talk about Chekhov. And that was funny. It was presented as a joke. And that is i don't know that's just a british thing but it is it's funny for someone to be trying to better themselves that's a, that's an obvious joke and of course it's also okay fine that was very funny but it's also it's also thrilling and people really enjoy it and that's why we keep doing it you know it's true isn't it because at the same time it was something rather different was happening in france you know like you had roughly roughly the same time you had the jacques tati films yes. where actually everyone is sort of uncontroversially bourgeois lower you know bourgeois and the joke there is that it's much more material. It's not to do with, um, yeah, philosophy, reading philosophy, or, or you know, or being a sculptor. It is actually about having the beautiful automated house, mm. you know, or or doing something other than smoking your pipe and going on a sort of you know holiday to the beach. It's it's in other words, it's about it's about technological sophistication. Mm. There's quite an interesting distinction between France and Britain at more or less the same time. Oh, I'd love to know more about that. Come on, come on, historians of comedy. But it, it is, it is, I'd be fascinated to know if you get that as, because I know this is going to be an amazing piece of news to you, but cultures do vary a great deal in what they find <laughs> funny. I know this is as surprising to me as it is to you. <laughs> Scientists have even proved this. If you translate French jokes into English, Australians do not find them funny. And if you translate Australian jokes into French, French people do not find them funny. There we go. Can't argue with science. <laughs> 
<laughs> I would love to know if that particular nexus was a really British thing or yeah. if that's something you find cropping up in other places. It's hard to ask those questions, I'm just trying but to it would think be on the, on the, you, get, you get a bit of everything in American comedy, don't you? It's yeah. interesting. It's a, it's a, it is a melting pot. Well, you, you tend to get comedies set in um, different workplace cultures or different... I suppose it's true here too, but, yeah. you know, Taxi, for example, it was the blue-collar comedy of, you know, the, the taxi rank. And then you'd have the Golden Girls, which was, you know, pretty wealthy retirees, you know, mm. in a... I don't know why I light on those two. <laughs> I suppose they... I mean... I mean, it is interesting. They're interested in professions and wealth, aren't they? Basically, American. But, that, but that does, it, I think there's still elements of that in British. So sitcoms, but, but basically, the first sitcomy sitcom was Hancock's Half Hour on the radio. Yeah. That was that was the sort of the and there because you're on the radio, you could sort of be flexible about exactly what the jobs were or what the situation was. And as soon as you're on TV, it has to be a bit more kind of fixed. And that went big quickly into professions. Or you know other hilarious things like look who's moved next door to me or my wife's yeah, a tyrant yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. from the seventies yeah. or we're all in prison, but that you know, <laughs> but that's kind of a way of setting up the situation so you can then play yeah. with that you know. But it is even then within that you get different things. So there's a lot you know sort of different kinds of aspirational behaviour are deemed acceptable in American culture than I think in the UK. Yeah, and in Britain it usually came down to, I think a lot of com- I mean I I know we often talk about you know comedy here but. But it often comes down to embarrassment. Mm. You know, just just so much. Uh, the thing, the common denominator is embarrassment and shame to do with stepping out of your kind of stratum. So from 40 Towers to yeah. Porridge to whatever you Peach like. Show. It's absolutely, yeah. it's yeah. it's all about... The office. You know, yeah. uh, failure and humiliation <laughs> in, the, in the public eye. And actually, the business of cultural engagement... And mental health and and as they're called SES socioeconomic um, statistics has something of that in it too. Are you a class traitor mm. uh, if you like something? If you like X, uh, it, there's that wonderful sketch that um, Harry and Paul did about you know he, they did various versions of it. The builders who are actually you know fans of the opera and the theatre <laughs> who who only perform as builders when passers-by sort of go, yeah. you know, they, they turn into sort of, you know, yeah. leery louts when someone walks past. The rest of the time they're talking about Simon Russell Peel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant sketch. No, it's, it, it, is, it is very, very interesting because although we, I mean, class is very exaggerated in British culture and there are, there are a few other cultures like that, but actually socioeconomic status is a hierarchy that you find everywhere where there are humans and there's not actual complete and total communism, but you still get it then. Yeah. Um, that will be a thing. And there are, and people do, you know, you reflect back your cultural context as well as your cultural aspirations in sorts, all sorts of things that you do from how you dress to what you listen to or what you, you know, or what you would think of doing in terms of cultural experiences. There'll still be cultural experiences, but they are, they remain very kind of marked by by kind of signifiers of class and status, I yeah. guess. So I would be lost if I went to Royal Ascot. I wouldn't know what to do. Or actually Wimbledon, I don't really understand it. And, yeah. you know, but that's just because I have no personal experience of it. I've never had any kind of contact with it. And I don't think, I don't think I'd fit in there, but that's me making an assumption. And that's everywhere. You know, all of us are, you know, finding our 
a space for it. I suppose the thing, the thing that made me kind of, particularly now when we've gone through like a year of stuff not being open, I had a well, one little weekend before Christmas last year when I got to go and see live comedy, Sheppy Corsandi, incredibly funny, and I went to the cinema and I went out shopping for the day in Brighton with my son and I felt like I'd been on holiday for two weeks. I was mm. just buzzing, absolutely buzzing because I'd done things and they were things that took me out from the home and I engaged in something else and it was it was amazing. So I can, I, I can always taste my desire for this to be normal again. Mm. Mm. Whatever it is that you end up doing, that you, there's just a chance to be able to do it. This is a pathetic story, but when... Um, there were obviously there was a few things that carried on last summer, and one of them was the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, which had a production that had come from the Barbican from the year before of Jesus Christ Superstar, and we're hardcore Jesus Christ Superstar fans, so we're like, go see Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> and the first time I went, because we didn't know it was going to be any good, I just got tickets for me and Hector, and it was the middle of the afternoon on a, it was a matinee performance on a Saturday, so it's sunlight, and you're sitting outside, not very theatrical. And the start, the, the kind of cast came out, all socially distanced on the stage and then they're all wearing masks and then when the music went da, 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 they tore off their masks and I just started crying and I never cried but I couldn't believe it was happening like people are doing this thing for me they've somehow found a way to make this happen and I think that's part of it as well isn't it the sort of the cultural side of it so someone wrote this they wrote this for me to read they're on the stage singing this for me to hear that that's a really really huge element of that this this thing has been created for us and we're doing it it's so fundamental isn't it i mean i i what what is it in the brain then what what is it neurologically that makes that so necessary why why do we need that kind of um sort of performance Mm. stroke validation well i would love to know what actually happens in those spaces that get created where something happens in this way and that could be like the word on the page becoming the thing that consumes you and you want to keep reading or the um you know the thing in a theater or so you know it it could be anything but that something something different starts happening it's not scrolling through social media Mm -hmm. something else is occurring Mm -hmm. and that kind of the idea of of performance and voices and spaces and what happens in those spaces is particularly what I'd love to know about. You know, when artists talk about being in the moment, musicians particularly, you just got to yeah. be in the moment. You 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 stop being aware that you're looking at, so that you, you lose awareness. And you self awareness, and you gain presence. Mm. And I think that's really what the artistic manoeuvre is, as I understand it. It's you're you're trying to provide a portal through which people lose themselves mm. in order to become something more than themselves. Yeah. And the individual is thereby sort of refreshed. But it's a but it's a. I'm quite a self conscious person, and I. I'm aware of looking at things a lot of the time, and I always think of it as being sort of the porthole eye that I'm, mm. I'm, I'm. And it's partly because of lockdown, but it's also because I have got a lot of pain, so I, I have to look at things quite carefully, in order to see whether I can do things. Mm. Can I sit on that chair? Can I do that journey mm. without jarring myself? There's. I, I'm always aware of this sort of circumference, my visual field, and, and then I, and I'm making judgments about what I can do, and so 
you know, music particularly is hugely important to me because I can close my eyes and leave that behind mm. and I enter a different space where I I cast aside all that self-awareness but I'm still there in some other way. Yeah. And I think it's a powerful and necessary thing and I wonder whether it wasn't part of what was ritually important about art too for people whose lives were very hard. It's why it's incredibly important in totalitarian regimes. You know, some, some existence... Uh, artistic existence that isn't about inspection or surveillance mm. but is something else where you are admitted to a um you know a space yeah you're brought into is, somewhere you're and... brought into something where the rules of the all the laws and the constraints are actually in a way suspended mm. I mean there's the obvious constraint of the way that the thing is circumscribed by itself and how it's done but beyond that you are everything is you know the yeah. imag imagination is the, the lid is taken off mm. yeah you're taken somewhere else which brings us on yeah absolutely would you would you read us some yeah so uh, just refresh these are poems by I've chosen four poems by Adam Zag Zagajewski uh, and a lot of what he wrote about, indirectly or directly, was um, his experience of being a Polish poet under communism and trying to resist, you know, the co-option of, of, of Polish society by um, Soviet Russia. And his work got banned in Poland for that reason. You know, he, he, he signed a sort of a petition against um, the, the statutes, I think, in the late mid 70s to sort of turn Poland into a vassal state and um, that was it you know he was he was banned but I'm going to read uh, the four poems are called Night is a Cistern Tierra del Fuego Impossible Friendships and Autumn okay so they're translated by a wonderful translator by Claire Cavanna Night is a Cistern Night is a Cistern Owls sing Refugees tread meadow roads with the loud rustling of endless grief. Who are you walking in this worried crowd? And who will you become? Who will you be when day returns and ordinary greetings circle round? Night is a cistern. The last pairs dance at a country ball. High waves cry from the sea. The wind rocks pines. An unknown hand draws the dawn's first stroke. Lamps fade, a motor chokes. Before us, life's path and instance of astronomy. I think it's a magical nightscape. Yeah. Um, catching absolutely that lovely sense of sounds particularly being amplified mm. like water in a cistern yeah the, the echo of the night yeah or although everything is open everything is also incredibly close and mm. and he's a very very canny and cunning political writer i really think all his poems are actually about about totalitarianism uh, you know and the way difference is suppressed um, but still exists and 
on one level, when you listen to a poem like that, it just seems to be a sort of lovely imagistic, simply written couple of first paragraphs um, with lovely observations, owls, you know, and um, the last pairs to country ball and, you know, the sound of the sea in the distance and the wind and the trees and um, the lovely sense in which dawn is unveiled or like a curtain being drawn. Were it not for one word, which is refugees. Mm. And it comes very, very early, early on so that you almost forget that the implied point of view for all this is the trail of refugees yeah. walking along the road. Yeah. It's really clever. I think as I was expecting it to just be, oh, here are some beautiful images of night. The refugees kind of just jumped off the page. It was really, it's not even misdirection, it's just like, there you go. Yeah. You're not going to miss this. Yeah. I think there was, there was an obituary of him somewhere that talked about him being one of those one of a group of you know european poets many poets and and you know prose writers who were trying to work out how you talked about the ordinary world in the light of particularly the second world war and the holocaust and mm. auschwitz but also in the light of um uh you know the the grip on Eastern Europe and, and, and Russia by, you know, Soviet communism. Mm. Uh, how do you reclaim a sense of things being ordinary that isn't naive? Mm. And in fact, Zagajewski called for a non-naive realism. So what he wanted to do was to try and set all, as it were, the kind of the things you would expect poets to write beautifully about the natural world, mm. but to set it in the context of a country and a place that's been completely changed yeah. by occupation mm. and bloodshed. As I'll read another one, which is which does something uh, similar. Again, this is um, translated by Claire Kavanagh. And it's called Tierra del Fuego. You who see our homes at night and the frail walls of our conscience. You who hear our conversations droning on like sewing machines. Save me. Tear me from sleep, from amnesia. Why is childhood, oh, tinfoil treasures, oh, the, ru the rustling of lead, lovely and foreboding, our only origin, our only longing? Why is manhood, which takes the place of ripeness, an endless highway, Sahara yellow? After all, you know there are days when even thirst runs dry and prayer's lips harden. Sometimes the sun's coin dims and life shrinks so small that you could tuck it in the blue gloves of the gypsy who predicts the future for seven generations back. And then, in some other little town in the south, a charlatan decides to destroy you, and then himself. You, who see the whites of our eyes, you who hide like a bullfinch in the rowans, like a falcon in the cloud's warm stockings, open the boxes full of song, open the blood that pulses in aortas of animals and stones, light lanterns in black gardens. Nameless, unseen, silent. Save me from anaesthesia. 
Take me to Tierra del Fuego. Take me where the rivers flow straight up. Horizontal rivers flowing up and down. It's a really lovely poem. Mm. I think it's from the collection called Mysticism for Beginners. <laughs> it's an enviable title. Uh, I love the way that all the kind of, you know, the way the sentence unfolds is, is really very unremarkable. Mm. There's nothing terribly choppy, changey about it or, or, or difficult to read. Nevertheless, it takes you in such unexpected directions. Mm. You just yeah. don't end up, like the refugees on the meadow, you just don't end up where you, you might think you'll end up. Mm. Who is he talking to? The you? Who is the you? Good question. I mean, I think the you here is um, a kind of universal witness. Mm. And make of that what you will. It could be a sort of... Um, your conscience, your better self, you know, your secular version of your saviour, your lover, um, the person who guides you to safety, I think. Mm. That seems to be what it is. But but beware of what you ask for, because it might be Tierra del Fuego. Yeah. And and I think it's also the you. It, it, it's, again, it's also about the, the, the political situation. It's about being pointed out. Yeah. So the you is actually um, the person looking at everyone. Yeah. So the secret police. Yeah, you know. yeah. I was wondering that, that sense of being observed. Nice. I think it's really hard to write that kind of thing without it... To make it really thorough without it being, you know, didactic. And how do you ever start to learn to do that? <laughs> Don't look at Tell me. Tell me about creative writing. No, seriously, though. <laughs> Because it's not, um, there's a sort of terrible accessibility about poetry. And I, you know, I, by which I mean, I've worked a lot with people who, you know, my job in Cambridge, I worked a lot with people who had uh, head injuries or had had, often people who'd had quite profound personality changes because of the brain damage they'd suffered. And it would be very, very common for them to have very different emotional experiences following this damage. And it would be extremely common for them to start writing poetry. Uh, uh, almost, un- you know, vast amounts of it. I'm not going to lie; not always very good poetry, but it it carried some weight to them in the writing, and that seems to be quite an, un- you know, not not a universal, but not an unusual experience to feel like you're finding some way of expressing yourself in the form of a poem that's helping you express this thing. But that's not most poetry. That's not poetry that becomes something different. I'm I'm guessing. What is it about poetry that makes it, you know, a, a valid and beautiful art object mm. for all its oddity as opposed to poetry that because of its oddity is primarily therapeutic mm. in other words it's about someone's voyage back to meaning yeah you know, they've suffered something that's taken them away from being understood and they start writing poetry because this stranger mechanism of language which seems to suit their loss of intelligibility Mm. and instant access to others 
is a way of representing that problem. Mm. You know, it's a, it make it makes sense because its oddness is a is a clear indication of what they're going through. Mm. But it's probably, as you say, not very good poetry. So what is it that makes the poetry poetry? To be clear, but I mean just by the standards of you, perhaps not everybody would want to read it. I'm, I'm sure yeah. it's great poetry. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. I'm yeah. trying to be disrespectful. No, I no, being, no. Yes. I mean, I, I yeah. think, but we have to, but it is also something we have to kind of, yeah. we have to sort of um, face. Because it's not true just of, it's not true just of people who've, who've, who've suffered something. Yeah. You know, those of us who write write poetry, most of it, to be completely truthful, isn't that good? Doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't have value. And it doesn't mean that it's not interesting. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I think is, I really believe, and I think it's terribly important, is that there's a guy, there's a, the, the famous peer of, uh, of Auden's, Louis McNeese, wrote a lovely poem called Elegy to Minor Poets. And the whole premise of it is that, you know, there are lots of um, minor poets who, 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 who do who do work and they are known for a bit and then they, they disappear into the kind of sort of cultural tilth and they, you know, they, they fail. Mm. That's his view of it. It's a lovely poem, uh, which I admire greatly as a poem. Um, I don't agree with its sentiment because mm. I actually think that, you know, the tilth, the soil, is what makes great artists possible. Yeah. You know, those big trees in the forest wouldn't exist were it not for people like me who routinely fail inverted commas, I think that's very unfair on you. No, but, yes. but, we're, but we're the microbes, you know. And 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 not only is it important to be a microbe, it's essential because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't get very yeah. far without it. Yeah. And I think that's that comes back to the business of cultural engagement. What is it to be a part yeah. of art production? Mm. Is it about standing out? Or is it about making? Yeah, doing it at all. No, absolutely. Because I think really the answer to your question is what, what makes the poetry poetry is time. Yeah. Time will sort it out. Yes. And, and, and time is, is, is very cruel and impossible to predict. And at a sufficient distance, the stuff that lasts will look self-evidently good because it's Because lasted. it's lasted. It's very interesting because you get exactly the same thing with science in that there's loads and loads of scientists. There's more scientists now than I think there's ever been. And pretty much all of it's wrong because it has to be wrong. Science isn't a way of finding out what's true and what's not true. It's, it's, a, it's a thing you do. And it is, it's possible down the line to look back at papers and say, yeah, they got... That's pretty much stood the test of time. A lot of that is not. You know, that, that that's, hasn't... We haven't reinterpreted it or decided that whole field's yeah. wrong or everything else. It's and and you but you only know it after a couple of decades. You don't know it in the moment when it's happening. And of course, the, what scientific funders are always looking to do is find the thing that will be the thing that lasts. Or more and more, there's a kind of push in science to try and get everything right before you even do the study, so that it will be true in some way. And it, you, you just can't do that. It's the it is not the decision of now to make about whether or not a study is good. No, it's fascinating, isn't it? Tolstoy wrote about this. I mean, it, that's really the theme of War and Peace, actually. Mm, yes. Which is that you know all the people supposedly making the decisions and driving things in a direction 
that they are confident will produce result X mm. are all wrong. Yeah. Or rather, there's no correlation between the sweep of history and intent. Mm. It's a very, very kind of interesting take on determinism, yeah. actually, that he's not quite saying that everything is foredained, but he is saying that most of our ideas at the time about where we're going are fated to be wrong and that it's actually he's really interested and it's the people who don't pay much attention to that who just get on with their daily lives who are really their hand is on the dial of time yeah but they're not aware of it yeah i mean you could even see it with technology i think what it's fascinating when like mobile phones first emerged that's here's an incredible thing we're going to spend our time talking to people we might be in a cafe and you can call someone and then sms text messaging came along and that became the dominant use very very quickly rather than you know people very rarely actually make lengthy phone calls on mobile phones because they're quite uncomfortable to speak on but this shifting thing edison invented the phonograph because he thought we'd be recording people's voices and then it became about music and no one had thought they would music was live why would you want to record music so, you know, this, 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 it always takes you off somewhere different. It's one of the beauties of being human, but it means it's impossible to say right now, that thing there, that one's for the ages, and it will always be that mean that thing. It's so fascinating. So even something that has apparently such a kind of built-in function turns out to have another function. Yeah, and that becomes the more popular thing, yeah. and then that changes everything. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, I find it thrilling. It's one of the things I like about science. You just don't know. If I, I'm now old enough that I can look back on my career and say... The, the you know the papers I've published that have been really successful were not necessarily the ones that at the time I can think of one that felt like a step change there are other things that felt like a step change are just they're in the weeds no one cared about it I never went back to it you know it's, yeah. it's very unlikely ever yeah, to be yeah. you know picked up by someone saying do you know what I think 30 years ago Sophie Scott was right about something and it's you know it, I'll be grateful in 30 years time if anyone's paying any attention at all to any of my work because <laughs> that's often not how it goes at all in science but I like that I, like, I yeah. like that feeling of kind of you're part of this endeavour and you just don't know what's going to stick, what's going to take, what's going to work, what will people listen to. And all you can do is try things out. And you may find that it has that possibility. It, I, I like that. I, I do. And I think I think it's very, very important in in artistic production soon and writing. I think that it's, you know, my uh, yeah, exactly that. My ambition is to be a sort of productive microbe. Yeah. Really, I, yeah. I I want to sort of generate the circumstances in which someone else does something. Yes. Unexpectedly, and yeah. and not really as a result of what I've written, even, but just because it's it's somehow it's somehow there, even if it's not read, and, and I can confidently predict it won't be read, you know, <laughs> and and that's fine. I remember going to a talk years ago by a PhD student from Holland who'd based his entire PhD thesis around what was frankly an offhand comment in a paper I'd written. And he was crediting me with all this stuff that he thought I'd said, and I'd said none of it, it was all him. <laughs> it's, 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 and actually, actually in that um, Umberto Eco book about how to write a thesis, yeah. he has that example of going yeah. to, I'm sorry if I've said it before, but that this book that formed the heart of uh, the name, name of the Rose, Rose yeah. yeah. And it was some idea in that, and he picked it up, just picked it up randomly in a second-hand bookshop, and it was always this example of why you should read, because he got this idea here, and then it had become this, this, this book that led to this other book. And he once, when having this conversation with someone, picked the book up to show them the paragraph, and it wasn't there, because yeah. he hadn't read it, he'd thought it while reading. And that's the beauty of it. 
that's yeah. the best you can hope for. You might someone else might think something while engaging with what you've done, and that that's real. That's yeah. it's having an effect. It's 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 the fork in the road that you know yeah. that, that that actually that appears to be a digression or or a move away from the main road, but then becomes the main route. Yeah, I mean, I think that is actually how. Certainly, that's how art develops. Yeah, you can't be in a tradition. You know, you can mm-hmm. only be of it. Yeah, you're only, you're only, you're, you're always something, something that's branched off. Yes, and I think it's imp- it's really important to understand that that's. I'm supposed to be writing this short book about distraction, and that's my <laughs> that's my whole my whole thesis. You know, it, is <laughs> that you can only it, it it only really exists at a tangent mm. to the main route. Yeah. There's no the, the main route is sort of an illusion. Yeah. Because you can't say you're in it's not you don't know. So it, it's all tangents really. It's yeah. all night's moves. Yeah. Um I want to get on and write it. <laughs> I think it's extremely meta to be writing a book about distraction. It is. <laughs> well, of course what, what what I have discovered you exactly what you won't be astonished here is that I've written all the notes. In fact, I've written many more notes than I'm required to write, you know, text. But I have found myself very, very effectively distracted by almost everything else. <laughs> Therefore, I've not written the book. Which seems to me like... That's a good place, I think, to wrap up. A good place to wrap we've up. Covered, we've covered a lot of wild ground there. Which was, we have. Uh, thank you very much for those poems. I really enjoyed them. Thank you, Sophie, too. Um, so we've done cultural engagement, mental health, communism, Adam Zajewski and uh, various other things. And we will see you next time. Uh, and we'll try and make it a bit more prompt than uh, the, the gap between um, the last two editions. But, you know, times is hard. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye.